Why is a Christian not condemned before God the judge? Because Paul goes on and talks about how God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to provide a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus takes the judgment of our sin upon himself on the cross so that we don't have to face the judgment of God. And then we saw that God not only sets a Christian free from condemnation, but he sets them free for a new kind of life, which is, Paul talks about, life in the Spirit. This is a life opposed to sin and selfishness. Sin and selfishness, he says, leads to death, but if you live a life according to the Spirit, that leads to life and peace. And then last week we saw that Paul calls Christians children of God. He talks about how we have been adopted into the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, if we're children, then we're heirs. And that's good news, because everybody likes to hear that you have an inheritance coming. If you're an heir, you have an inheritance. And that's what Paul says. As Christians, you are heirs of God. It's a good thing to be an heir of a wealthy uncle. It's even better to be an heir of God. And you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So, so far, Romans 8, for the most part, has painted a very cheery picture of the Christian life. No condemnation. Life in the Spirit. Heirs with Christ. But Paul the Apostle is a realist. And he begins to talk about suffering in verse 17. He says, if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Yes, there are many blessings of the Christian life, but still we suffer. And we suffer with others. Uh, Just yesterday, I got an email from a parishioner who was requesting some prayer and just wanted me to be aware of what was going on in her life. She said, my mother-in-law is dying at home in hospice. My brother-in-law, who was out of remission, uh, was in remission from cancer, has cancer again, is back in the hospital, going through chemotherapy. She's trying to support her husband as he goes through all this, and she's requesting uh, prayer. Suffering. It's a part of our life, all of our lives, even Christians. So this is what we want to talk about today. How do we make sense of suffering? How do... How do Christians go through suffering? How should we go through suffering? What's the perspective? Look at what, verse, what Paul says in verse 17. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the controlling verse in this passage. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Paul's thinking about it. He's considering it. Some versions say, I'm, I reckon, I'm, I, I'm, I'm counting up the suffering and I'm thinking about the glory. I've got my scale out. And he says, you can just throw away the scale. There's no comparison between the suffering of this life and the glory that will be revealed to us. And Paul, by the way, if you know a little bit of his biography, was a man who experienced a lot of suffering in his life. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians where he gives in a couple places in 2 Corinthians a catalog of all his suffering. So uh, Paul knows what suffering is all about and probably in ways in, in, in a deeper sense than some of us will ever know. 
And he says, yet yeah, I've gone through this, but I'm, I'm thinking that, I believe that, the future glory is going to far outweigh any suffering that we experience now. So one preacher put it this way. This was the way that he summarized the theme of this passage of Scripture. Groans now, glory then. Groans now in this life, but glory in the life to come. There's going to be a glorious redemption. And Paul talks in this passage, he he illustrates uh, what this redemption is going to be like and where it's going to take place, the realm of redemption. And he talks about, first of all, creation itself will be redeemed. Paul is obviously personifying uh, the created world. He says here that the, the world is growing. Let's read it, to, read it in verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation, Paul says, is groaning. Why? Why is creation groaning? Well, it's been subjected to futility. It's it's not functioning the way that God created it to function. God created the world to function so that human beings could flourish. So that human beings could enjoy creation. So you go back to the Genesis stories. You go back to the stories of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And, uh, for example, chapter 2 it says that God gave the fruit of the trees to Adam and Eve for food and for enjoyment. The trees were pleasant to the sight and good for food, Genesis 2.9. So God created this world for human flourishing and enjoyment. And God created the world to display His glory. Uh, Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. And of of course, we still experience some of this today, the glory of creation and and how it reflects the majesty of God. When we went camping earlier this summer, uh, Noah stopped me at night. We were on a walk at night, and he stopped, and he said, Dad, look at the stars. He had never seen stars like that. Just the beauty and the majesty and the clarity. And when you look at the starry skies above, it does give you a sense of the transcendence and majesty of God. That's why God created the world. But then Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God, it brought God's judgment. It brought a curse. God is the one who subjected it to futility. And since that time, since the fall, the tentacles of sin have spread all the way throughout creation, corrupting everything. And so creation is in bondage to corruption, Paul says. And we have viruses and cancer and hurricanes and tsunamis and environmental disasters and tornadoes and all the rest. And the point is, this is not the way God created the world to be. This is the effect of sin. That's how serious sin is. It's had this devastating effect even on the created order. order. And so Paul says creation is groaning. But there is hope, glory, glory is on the way. There's groaning now, but glory then. Paul says there's going to be redemption, and the, and the word redemption means to be set free. 
And, and he says the created order itself will be set free to be the way God intended it to be. It'll be loosed. The creation waits in eager expectation, eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Verse 19. Now that's a curious passage, isn't it? How do we make sense of that? Verse 19. The, the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Literally, uh, this is creation is straining its neck to see what's going to happen next. It's like somebody uh, at an event, maybe a parade or something, and they can't quite see over the crowd, and so they're straining the neck, their necks to see what's coming down next. And, and he's personifying creation. Creation is straining its neck to see this final event. When the sons of God, that, are, uh, that, that, that means those who are in Christ, are revealed at the end of time. So Paul's referring here to Christians who will rule with Christ at the end of time in the new heaven and the new earth. That's really where history is headed. Many people today who don't have a biblical view of history look at the world, they look at the disasters, they look at the tragedies of the world, and they say this is just a random cycle of senseless tragedy and suffering. They don't have the eyes of faith to see that God is sovereign, God is in control, and history is headed somewhere. And as Christians, we look at life, our life, and, and the life of the, the world and how history is unfolding. We have to look at life through the lens of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ died and rose again. It seemed like there was no rhyme or reason to the death of Jesus, but then God raised him from the dead to demonstrate that he is sovereign, he is in control. And the death and resurrection of Jesus prefigures, it's a sign of greater things to come. And so that's how we look at the world. And history is headed to a final day when God will put the world to rights. A day of ultimate justice. Jesus in our passage talks about a separation that's going to happen at the last day between the righteous and the unrighteous. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's God's ultimate plan of redemption, a new, renewed heaven and renewed earth. And that's all throughout the Bible, this idea of a redeemed creation. So Isaiah 11, 6, 9 talks about, about uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Now that passage of Scripture. Or Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind renewed creation or revelation 22 the holy city the new jerusalem will come down from heaven so i think sometimes the way we think about the end times we've messed this in the christian church although it's been in the scriptures all along and sometimes we've been tempted to think that the end is is this sort of, sort of uh, will be in heaven floating on clouds in a disembodied sort of state but the biblical vision is God the Creator is going to redeem all of His creation. And all Christians, the sons of God, will reign with Christ in the new creation, in the new heaven, and the new earth. That's a grand vision. That's a bigger vision than what we've thought of before. Now, Russell Moore, who's a Baptist professor, writes that if we believe this as Christians, and this is what the Bible teaches, then we should see our life now as an internship for the life to come. Isn't that interesting? He says, God is teaching us now to learn in little things how to be in charge of great things. So our jobs, whether it's with preaching the gospel or teaching or 
or writing books or passing laws or taking care of children or, or if, if you're a goat herder. All of our jobs have meaning. They're not accidental. God is trying to teach us. And the things that we do in church are ushering, are taking care of children, running the sound system, whatever it might be. God is training us, forming our character to fit us for his mission in the new heaven and the new earth. There'll be things to do in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I've shared this with some people who didn't like that idea, especially one time I was talking to a, a mom, not my wife, busy mom with lots of kids, but similar situation. I think my wife can appreciate the sentiment this lady expressed when I, ta- I said, you know, I believe that in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be work to do. And this busy mom with several kids said, oh, I don't want to do work when I get to heaven. I want to rest. <laughs> so maybe there'll be a thousand years of rest for moms stay at home. I don't know. But whatever we do, whatever we do, it's going to be great. It's going to be something that contributes to the glory of God and fulfills us as human beings. So creation groans now, waiting for this day, the revelation of the sons of God. But then Paul talks about another realm of redemption, which is our bodies. Paul says, we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We who have the first fruits. And that's an important phrase because the first fruits means that a a greater harvest is to come. Those of you who are gardeners, you like to see the first tomatoes that, that pop up out of the ground or the first flowers that come out. Why? It shows that it's working, and there's, there's more to come. There's going to be more flowers, more tomatoes, what, whatever. And Christians have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, which give us a foretaste of the glory that's to come in heaven. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, what are, what are some evidences of the Holy Spirit as first fruit in our life? Well, he's talked about in the previous verse, if you remember from last week, he's talked about how Through the work of the Holy Spirit, a Christian can know God as Abba Father. We can have an intimate relationship with God as our Father. We can cry out to Him and we can know Him. Abba, Father. This term of family intimacy. Non-Christians don't have that kind of relationship with God, although it's available to them through Jesus Christ. We can have assurance, Paul says, that we, we are sons of God. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So this is a part of the first fruits of the Spirit in our life. We have this assurance that we belong to God, that He's our Heavenly Father. And then after this passage of Scripture, He'll, look, he'll, he'll talk about, if you look down there, if you have your Bibles open, about how the Spirit intercedes for us. So the Spirit helps us communicate with our Father. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can have this communication with God our Father. And this work of the Holy Spirit is important. When we think about suffering as Christians, listen, when we think about suffering as Christians, we may not understand, and oftentimes we don't understand why we're going through it. We don't have the answers. But if the Spirit is at work in our life like this, when we know that God is our Father, we can trust Him even though we don't have the answers as we go through these things. This work of the Holy Spirit gives us an inward assurance. Again, non-Christians don't understand that. They don't don't get that, that there's this internal witness for a believer that God is my Father and I know Him. A lot of non-Christians think that a Christian just sort of takes a leap of faith to believe. 
and they have no reason to believe, and there's no real evidence of believing in Jesus Christ. So a Christian is somebody who just blindly believes what they've been taught, and they have no evidence. But that's not New Testament Christianity. Part of the evidence of believing in Jesus Christ is the internal work of the Holy Spirit. A person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. And so this is a precious thing that God, the Holy Spirit, does in our life, bringing us that assurance. So it's a foretaste of the glory to come, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Right now, we groan. (laughs) We suffer. Anybody groan lately because of your body? (laughs) Suffering of the body? Johnny Erickson Tata, do you know that name? Johnny Erickson Tata. Wonderful Christian witness, a a great example for us of somebody who has suffered greatly in in her life, but but has gone through it with such uh, faith. And uh, she's been paralyzed in a chair, a wheelchair, for four decades. On top of that, she was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. So this is the kind of suffering that she's experienced. In one of her books, she says, I have wept, I have longed for, I have prayed for God's healing in my body. And the answer has been, not yet. And she says, I don't understand it. She believes in healing, but she said, my answer has been, not yet. And so Johnny Erickson Tata spends a lot of time meditating on heaven. She says, I'm looking forward to dancing, kicking, and doing aerobics in heaven. But the best thing about heaven will not be running or walking or touching or holding. It will be the pure heart, no longer weighed down by sin and selfishness. What she says in one of her books. She tells an example. She gives uh, a story of of a pastor who's visiting a dying parishioner. And the pastor was there with this dying man, holding his hand, praying for him, keeping watch. And this dying parishioner opens his, his eyes and suddenly, and he says, Is that you, Pastor? Yes, it's me. I've been here with you. I'm praying with you. And the man moaned, Oh, I'm so disappointed. I was hoping to see Jesus. And it's just you. <laughs> but a few minutes away uh, after that, the man did, did slip away into eternity and I don't think he was disappointed then. This is the Christian hope, hope in the midst of suffering, to see Christ and then to experience the full redemption of our bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Groans now, glory then. So how do we respond? Let's look at this final passage here. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When you suffer or when you see suffering as Christians, we're called to exercise this hope. Not to give up, not to despair, not to lose heart, not to turn away, and not to limit our hope to what we see, but to believe in the Word of God and His promise, the One who raised Jesus from the dead. Keep hope alive. Keep living in hope. Put it on display in your life. Paul says this is what saved us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us this hope. It is a supernatural hope. It's not something that the world can provide. It's hope and something that only you can do. Your redemption, God. And we pray that we would believe in it and we would walk in it and we would embody it in our everyday life.
And Lord, I pray for people here who may be going through difficult times, who need to experience in a renewed way the hope that's available through Jesus Christ. Stir that hope in us and help us to walk in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.